Hey there, Alabaster Jar listeners. Before we begin this week's episode, I want to share with you two updates from our partners. First of all, Seminary Now has just released an exciting new course on women in the New Testament from our very own Dr. Lynn Coick. Seminary Now is a subscription-based streaming video platform that delivers exclusive biblical, theological, and practical ministry training from a diverse group of leading educators and thought leaders. You can visit seminarynow.com to learn more and sign up for your seven-day free trial. Also, if you are listening to this episode on Tuesday, May 17th, Northern Seminary is hosting their next Taste of Northern event today. On this day, they offer free classes from world-class faculty on various theological topics, as well as a vibrant classroom environment, student body, and diversity of discussion. If you are discerning next steps for your theological education, Taste of Northern Events will give you an opportunity to see if Northern Seminary is a place where you can be trained to live out your purpose and ministry. Visit seminary.edu slash taste to register for today's event or learn more about future events. Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. In this week's episode, our host, Dr. Lynn Coick, is joined by Dr. Barry Bishop and Megan Phillips. Barry Bishop is the Interim Director of the Marriage and Family Therapy Program at Talbot Theological Seminary. She graduated from Talbot with a Master of Arts in Spiritual Formation and Soul Care, and then obtained her doctorate in Psychology from Azusa Pacific University. Her primary research interest is in the area of trauma and spiritual direction. In addition to teaching, she also practices as a clinical psychologist. Megan Phillips is a licensed marriage family therapist and a licensed minister. She is the director of clinical training for the MFT program at Talbot. She received her master's in clinical psychology at Vanguard University and her master's in spiritual formation and soul care from the Institute for Spiritual Formation at Biola University and Talbot Theological Seminary. She has been a practicing spiritual director since 2007, and prior to her graduate studies, Megan spent over 10 years in church ministries, specifically working with youth and children. Hi, Barry. Hi, Megan. Thanks so much for joining us on the Alabaster Jar. Uh, It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Lynn. Thank you. I'm delighted to have you. You're welcome. I'm delighted to have you both. Um, You are part of the marriage and family therapy discipline, um, and also part of the Institute for Spiritual Formation at Talbot School of Theology there at Biola. I, I hope I've said all of those things correctly. It's pretty All impressive. of the names, yes, yes. <laughs> Good, I was practicing. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm delighted that you both have um, joined the Alabaster Jar. We're going to be talking about uh, and the area of trauma, trauma and suffering, what, what, Mm. uh, just to help us, um, unpack what is a really important subject. And we'll also talk a little bit about characters in the, in the biblical text that can help us understand a, a helpful way to look at suffering, um, look at resilience and, and all of that. So thanks very much for coming on the alabaster jar. Serene and I are going to tag team some of the questions because this topic uh, really is on the front line of pastoral ministry. And we want to make sure that um, 
you know, we give uh, you and uh, you two a chance to uh, help us so that we can help others and, mm -hmm. and uh, also uh, experience a blessing ourselves. So um, before we dive into the specific questions, I'd love for each of you, maybe starting with Barry, to just introduce uh, yourself and kind of say maybe why why you were drawn into the study of uh, marriage and family therapy or into counseling. Barry? Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much, Lynn. Yeah, so I'm uh, Barry Bishop. I'm located here in La Mirada at Biola University. Um, so I... Um, I'm originally from Chico, Northern California. I came down and got my master's degree at the Institute for Spiritual Formation, where I was trained in spiritual formation and soul care, trained as a spiritual director. Um, and that was just so helpful, informative, um, transformative in knowing my own story, my own story in relationship to the Lord Jesus. And I had known that I had wanted to go into some sort of helping profession. I, so I went on to Azusa Pacific and I got my um, doctorate in psychology. And I was trained in a systems perspective, um, which lends itself very nicely to the discipline of marriage and family therapy. Um, and then uh, last year, Megan and I um, took on the marriage and family therapy program um, here at Talbot. And um, it has just been such a gift um, to be in this program to um, focus on the formation of the soul of the therapist. That, that is our vision, the formation of the soul of the therapist. And because we're um, housed in, under the Institute for Spiritual Formation, uh, we're able to do that with so many wonderful resources. So, so I... Um, I, that's that's my day job. I'm also a parent, a spouse. I I, I used to have a life. I used to, I used to have hobbies. <laughs> Somebody asked me what my hobbies were, and I was like, I, I don't know what they are. I asleep, yeah. you know, chasing children is chasing children, yeah. making peanut. I can make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich so well. Um, yeah. And so what what got me interested in trauma, trauma informed care? Um, you know, I. I had, um, I've, I've had my own experience, uh, with trauma, um, with some prolonged, um, emotional, emotional suffering. Um, and I, as I, um, started to uh, understand how trauma had impacted my life, I realized that I had quite, quite a bit of space and capacity to be with others and their own trauma. And it really um, uh, uh, guided, I guess, my interest in uh, research. So my my dissertation is on how spiritual direction can um, uh, help with trauma processing and trauma informed care and um, treatment. And um, and that's primarily the the work that I do as a therapist. So I'm a I'm a licensed therapist within the state of California. And uh, that's who I um, see is primarily folks who have had an experience or continue to experience or have, had, have chronic experiences of trauma. And so I, um, 
I think about trauma a lot and I think about um, both what it is, I think about prevention and I think about um, care and treatment. And so that's that's a little bit of, of my background and, and where I'm at now. Um, yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, and we'll dive into into those subjects. Yeah. Megan, your your story. Yeah. So I also am a California native. I grew up in Southern California and had such a positive experience in my own churches uh, as a youth that I felt drawn into pursuing vocational ministry post-grad. And so I worked in the church for I'd have to do the math. I think 10 to 12 years. Uh, that was really where I thought I was going to live and have my career. Um, and I worked with children's ministry, youth ministry, mostly, you know, the 18s and under some college as well. And then a handful of years into that, um, I took a position overseas and I worked in England for a number of years at an international interdenominational church. And as I was there, I stumbled upon the Institute for Spiritual Formation. I knew that wasn't going to be where I was going to live forever and felt compelled and drawn back to Southern California. Family was here. And when I had found out about the Institute for Spiritual Formation, um, wanted to go on and do some uh, graduate work. And so when I found myself there, it similar to Barry really went on a journey inward um, and had this beautiful experience of marrying um, spirituality, uh, my faith with emotional intelligence. And as I came out of that as a trained spiritual director, I thought I could I could stay in spiritual direction, I can stay in church ministry, but having learned a little bit more about psychology as well, I thought that there could be some real fruit of marrying the two and working with people in that way and from a skills-based um and, and well-equipped uh, professional perspective. And so I went on and did additional uh, work in uh, clinical psychology. And so I then went on to Vanguard University and got a master's in clinical psychology. And that then uh, is where I've been living for the past 10 or so years as a licensed marriage and family therapist here uh, in California. And um, yeah, in the middle of uh, COVID pandemic times was seeing 2025 clients weekly over telehealth and just really seeing the impact of people for the past 10 years, but per, uh, specifically in the last few years. Um, and I worked with a lot of, and I still do some um, medical frontline workers and seeing the impact of trauma on them. And also from a clinical perspective, uh, working with those people, uh, the impact of secondary trauma and compassion fatigue and all of that, that we experience as professionals in our field. So coming into the um, marriage and family therapist program at Biola has been a real uh, timely um, appointment, I'll say, in the opportunity to focus on the formation of the soul of the therapist with future clinicians, knowing um, being a clinician myself, working among clinicians, uh, noticing um, the varying degrees of health um, in the field as people uh, navigate um, their own experiences as a clinician. And so I'm, as we are talking today, I'm, I'm, thinking about both my experiences in the church 
um, as we can think about the role of trauma, resiliency, et cetera, but also with um, those who are, um, we're training as well and really focusing on this formation of the soul so that we can really help our future clinicians navigate uh, the spaces they'll go to with their clients because they will experience their clients and there will be some um, deeply traumatic experiences that they will be witness to. And so that's kind of something that I'm most interested right now at this stage of my, my career. Yeah, yeah. No, it's fascinating. Well, to just kind of lay things out, and I know for my own benefit, could you talk about what trauma is and what maybe contrast that with suffering? Because there's a difference, isn't there? What What's trauma? And, and then how would that be distinguished from suffering? Yeah. So there's certainly overlap. Absolutely. Um, and so, so trauma, trauma can be an experience. It can be, um, you know, physical, sexual abuse, neglect, bullying, um, violence, disaster, war, those can, you know, it can be an, an experience. Um, but it can also be, there can also be emotional trauma, which is unendurable emotional pain without a relational home. And Unpack that a little bit for me. That, yeah, yeah, that yeah. sounds that sounds really good. What yeah. what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. So this is this is from Robert Stollero. He's an um, an expert when it comes to he's a psychologist um, when it comes to uh, trauma and um, emotional trauma is when you are experiencing maybe uh, what we would say you know is a is a negative emotion. So perhaps like fear. And you don't have anywhere to go with that fear. And you don't have a safe relational space to, to unpack that fear. And so trauma really is, um, is, has, uh, is contextual, meaning the system which within which uh, the, the, how do I say this? The system wherein the trauma occurs that that is the difference between somebody experiencing a trauma and and navigating it and and um, and and feeling like oh I'm okay mm-hmm. a sense of like okayness versus somebody going through an experience and being traumatized feeling like that, that it's 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 scarred them it has it has impacted them and left them wounded. Um, so, so trauma, you know, um, let's, let's say like, you know, an example of chronic neglect from a parent or verbal or emotional abuse, which is hard to, to articulate for somebody because they haven't, um, there's, there's not like an experience, one experience Mm -hmm. to point to it's, it's day in, day out of being, um, treated, you know, incredibly poorly, and then having these feelings, these emotions of um, worthlessness, of uh, of just uh, rejection, of pain, maybe of fear, and then maybe that's the system that you're a part of. You you don't have anywhere to go with those feelings, and so you just are experiencing these feelings, these emotions, all by yourself, mm-hmm. and it just becomes this this despair, this, this hopelessness, this, um, this pit. And, um, 
and that, you know, is where a lot of maybe suicidal thoughts come in, into play, um, a sense of just total helplessness when the system is not responsive. And how would you, how would you contrast then that with suffering? So, so suffering would be, um, would be having, having an experience that is painful, that brings about fear, that brings about like, um, anger even, and being able to regulate it on your own or within your system and move through it. Okay. So, so if I, you know, get into my car and I, and I get onto the freeway and I get into a fender bender, and I experience fear, maybe I experience some pain, shock, I'm able to, you know, have a system that's responsive. Maybe somebody pulls over, how you doing? I'm able to call my husband. He says, oh, I'm so sorry that happened. Let's figure it out. There's there's responsiveness. And it's like, okay, I experienced suffering from being in a car accident, but I, I'm able to, you know, uh, move through it. You know, you, we experience suffering all the time, you know, um, little suffering, um, you know, like I, uh, I, I fell, I tripped, I, you know, sprained my ankle. Maybe that's not so little I, to, to, you know, big suffering where, you know, maybe it's, um, it's, it's grief. It's, it's death. Mm-hmm. And, and you're able to, to regulate it, within your system internally, intrapsychically is what we call it internally and relationally interpersonally. Um, and so the, the difference between, you know, suffering and, and, you know, emotional pain versus, you know, a trauma and, and being traumatized is really the difference between the systemic responsiveness. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Megan, you see um, the, uh, as you were talking about the um, healthcare workers, for mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. and what they might, uh, might experience. And I, uh, I think you mentioned the word resilience or something mm-hmm. similar to that. So we've got mm-hmm. trauma and we've got suffering distinguished. Now we have people in a state of trauma or, yeah, witnessing other people's trauma. So what, what then is this piece of, of resilience? What, where does resilience come in? Yeah. I mean, I think something that I would add to that as well in the context is that suffering is part of the universal experience. Trauma isn't necessarily right. We do live in a world in which we will experience suffering. And so there needs to be in my mind. And as I've worked with clients, this idea that as we grow in our resiliency, and that really is the ability to bounce back from whatever is happening, whether it's a trauma or whether it's a, um, a normal part of our human experience in which we suffer, um, to some degree, to be able to increase our tolerance for distressful events. So I I know that I um, internalized somehow some sort of messaging growing up in my family of origin, in my faith community, that if I really worked hard and tried really hard, I could avoid being hurt or disappointed, that somehow I could kind of rise above and levitate above pain. (laughs) And so imagine my shock and surprise when that didn't work out. Um, And so I think there is this idea that we um, need to 
to engage with that suffering um, is universal. And yet we have some power within that. And I think that's one of the um, treatments, one of the things to keep in mind that uh, in a traumatic or a suffering experience, both, that if there's a moment of empowerment or a way to regain some sense of agency, um, that's going to be really transformative. And so in, in if, if we're just talking about suffering right now, right now, my, my spouse is sick. Right. And so I am to some degree suffering and he is to some degree suffering, right? As I'm navigating the household. And so if I can increase my tolerance for distress, if I can build that muscle over time and also in a specific instance, I can actually navigate that much better. And so that is something that I'm, I'm very aware of and really trying to work on. Um, and work on broadly, right? Work on personally and work on with our students and with um, my clients as well. I'm going to let Serene jump in here in a minute because I know she's got some questions as a pastor. Before we jump there, though, I'd love to um, think with you about maybe some female uh, biblical characters that either you'd love to talk with about how did you manage this trauma or how did mm-hmm. you manage your suffering? Who who might come to mind from the biblical text? Yeah, so, I mean... The- the person who comes to mind just automatically is Eve. In fact, I have a picture of her um, right behind me. I can uh, see that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's of it, of Eve and Mary um, together. And it's a beautiful recreation from um, Scott the painter and Scott Erickson. And um and so I think about Eve, I think about Mary a lot too, but um, I think about Eve in her suffering and, um, and how her suffering, not just from, you know, you know, ha- having to leave the garden, but particularly her suffering as a mother, I, her mother of, of, of two sons where there was conflict, there was tension, there was violence, and then there was a death. And I just, I'm just so wanting to know how did she navigate that, that pain and that trauma, that suffering? Um, And I, I, I'm using both of those words because I, I'm not sure if, you know, she was left traumatized by that, you know, I'm not sure if she, you know, experience profound trauma. <laughs> um, I'm not sure if she experienced profound suffering. I'm not sure if she was able to regulate that. If how her, how did her marriage um, or her her relationship with with Adam, um, you know, <laughs> hold all of that? How did her system hold hold all of that? How did her how was her relationship with God impacted? How did she go to God? I I would just love to to, to talk with. Eve and say, like, how did you navigate that? Because, and, and did you continue to have, you know, re- meaningful relationships after such a horrific experience? And so I, I think about her when I think about suffering and, you know, p- potential trauma, being traumatized. Um, I, I think about her quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful. Megan, who do you yeah. think of? Yeah, Ruth comes to mind um, for a number of reasons, but 
the idea that she experienced and, and observed so much death within their family unit and then needing to leave and um, travel and even make those decisions, right? There's so much in the midst of suffering and trauma, um, an added layer here, I would say, and I'll put it in modern terms, is just even the decision fatigue of having to navigate your trauma and, and make decisions in the middle of it when you would ask the question, haven't I already experienced enough and now I have to make these hard decisions for her, right? Do I stay? Do I go? Do I leave um, the current known for the, the unknown? There is so much unknown um, that accompanies, I would say, trauma and suffering and anxiety. And so she comes to mind for me. Um, and then again, to, to further this idea of this unknown, what's going to become of me? What's my life? Um, and as she navigated um, staying with Naomi, staying with her mother-in-law, but also in a new place, and then just the work she did too. I, I can only imagine that that was quite strenuous and laborious and yet she she maintained a sense of hope we we observe that um and so she's the first person who comes to mind for me as i think of someone who who likely i'd, I'd love to I, I would actually love to to talk to her right and and ask her to contextualize whether she would have experienced those as traumas or as suffering i think that'd be very fascinating oh absolutely yes there two um Two women we uh, we really want to explore, and Ruth we know a little bit more, but we don't know enough <laughs> to yeah. you know to raise those questions. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, in both of those stories that you each just referenced, I can't help but noticing a theme of the relationships that each one of mm. them had and the effects that they had on their experiences. So what uh, what role do you see relationships playing in navigating trauma and the role that they can play in, in healing from trauma? Hmm. Yeah, I might expand a bit on that. I love that you made that connection because Naomi is the other predominant female in that story, right? And so there mm -hmm. is this togetherness. There's this, um, and they both suffered similar traumas, right? Different, mm -hmm. um, but similar, the death of their their spouses. And so I think relationships, as Barry spoke earlier, that is the healing context, right? That is why therapists do what they do, that someone would have a positive emotional experience with another person, see, be seen, um, and held and contained in this therapeutic context. And so, yes, I would, I would say that um, that is a necessary element for people um, to be able to heal. I, uh, mm -hmm. I, I'm kind of going to reach back in my memory bank, and I'm, I'm guessing I'm not going to be able to get the reference, but I even remember reading something years ago um, regarding medical care in, I believe, the state of Oregon, in which they were inviting um, clinicians into uh, hospital rooms, into doctor's offices as they were communicating diagnoses and things like that. So that there would be someone to be able to navigate that with them in a relational way. And certainly there would be family members, hopefully, in those um, spaces. But we do know that when people are lonely, when people are alone, the ability to heal and heal well and heal quickly is, is much diminished. And so we do need companions. And so if I look at Ruth and Naomi, or if I look at myself and my friend 
group or if I look at myself and my my mentors or the people in my ministry context that I've been around, I've been able to grow, um, heal, be uh, held, um, navigate things that um, I wouldn't have been able to do on my own uh, or do well. And so I think um, that's this relational um, dynamic is imperative. Mm-hmm. So good. Yeah. Barry, anything to add to that? Yeah. I mean, Megan articulated it so well, but I, I think that, that, um, you know, when I think of, um, a relational home, I think of, you know, safety. Mm-hmm. And so, so those relationships that Megan are, is talking about, you know, they are characterized by being, being safe. Um, so in training therapists in our own training, we are, um, you know, being given, given tools and training to be safe spaces for folks to land. Mm-hmm. And um, what elements contribute to safety? What elements take away from safety, felt safety? And um, some of those can be, you know, fairly ambiguous. Some of them are just very straightforward, you know, um, listening, (laughs) active listening, um, reflection, asking concrete questions, you know, compassion, um, uh, not violating any boundaries, honoring, honoring the, the, what the, 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 um, the context of the relationship, and not maybe going past that or pushing past that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that safety is a is an uh, is a very very um, crucial part of of a relational home where healing um, can occur, where um, regulation can occur, and I mean, when we think about you know Eve and um, uh, and Ruth and, and Naomi, we, we think about, you know, their relationships with, with others, but, but we also think about their relationship with God mm-hmm. and, you know, to what degree did they experience their, you know, a safe relational home with God? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I would think that we can see that a little bit more clearly with Ruth, um, with Eve, I, my assumption is, given you know how uh, the, the how close in t- you know time her proximity was with um, in in the garden, that she would have you know had a felt you know experience of of safety with God. I, I don't totally know, <laughs> um, but I think that that would have played such a significant role in um, their healing their, their development and, and then also their, their resilience. Um, yeah. That's so helpful. And in my ministry context, I see this play out in small groups a lot, you know, small groups are a great place for people do a lot of what you both just described grow in a relationship with God, but also with others. A healthy small group can be a place where people feel safe. It can feel like home, um, really you know, fights against isolation and loneliness, building those relationships. Um, so I've seen so much good happen in small groups of people when adults gather together like this. 
but there is also a tension of when trauma has been experienced and someone brings that trauma with them into the group. Hmm. I think we can have a, the best of intentions, but, and I know I'm guilty of this as well. Sometimes we're tempted to respond to like a story, someone shares their story of trauma in that kind of context. And we want to share or compare to our own experiences or our own stories, or maybe just try to solve the problem for them. And I don't know that that's always the most helpful way to approach it. So I would be interested in your insights of how can we, one, as individuals, um, respond and be, uh, help contribute to spaces that are safe for people who have experienced trauma. But then how can we also think of this as ministry leaders? How can we um, resource our leaders to create spaces that are safe, um, safe homes for people who have experienced trauma. Do you, either of you have thoughts on that? Can I? I think oh. we both have thoughts on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. Let me, let me say one thing as we jump into this arena, because there's so much to talk about, but I first want to validate that pull that most people have to want to share their own experience, because that's what we're talking about. That's the relational move. Now, it doesn't feel necessarily relational, right? And so this desire to share and see and be seen, I really want to honor and validate that that is uh, normal and that that is, um, it may not always be the most appropriate, but it's really human. Right. And I, again, I just want to bring that up because in those small group contexts where someone says this happened to me and someone else said, Oh my goodness, I relate to that. There's something really beautiful. Now, what can happen more often, not more often than not, what can happen is that someone would the person who shared initially may feel accidentally minimized, accidentally dismissed because not enough care and attention went to what they were sharing. And so then I would want to say, we would want to expand this idea of um, containing and holding that I can hear something that I can take it in and that I can recognize that person just needs to be seen and heard and validated. And to be clear, um, validation doesn't always mean agreeing right? I can validate something in my child that I don't agree with. I have a very, one of my children in particularly has a lot of big feelings. There are a lot of, this is the worst day ever. Like it's, 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 um, <laughs> it's just what comes out of her. It's not the worst day ever. However, if I try to convince her that it's not the worst day ever, she gets minimized, dismissed, not seen, not known. And so I will then, oh, that is so hard. I'm so sorry. This was, sounds like a really bad moment. So I might also reframe it a little bit for her. This is so hard. But also then um, finding a way to hold her, right, in empathy and validating and, and recognizing that I don't agree that it's the worst day ever, right? So in a small group context, I think that would be important. There's many things to talk about here, but one of which would be that we can hold space that we can validate without agreeing and we don't need to solve it because that person likely isn't looking for a solution. And with trauma, there's probably not a solution. There's probably not mm -hmm. anything that other member in the group would be able to say that would take away the pain that would resolve it. And so I, I want to, um, create also the, that this, this one piece here that sometimes people do feel a sense of shame that, Oh, I did, I made the wrong move. I shared something or I, you know, and I shouldn't have done that. No, I want to say that that's really normal, right? Of course we want to relate and that's relational. So there's more to say, Barry. Hmm. No, I mean, that's like, yeah, you're so good. You're, <laughs> such, a, you're, such, a, you're such a good, 
just person just love it um so glad i work with you oh, uh yeah i so i think that in terms of your question serene about um like what can we as liter- uh, leaders um in ministry do i think that f- first what i would really want for leaders in the church to have is their own experience mm. of being listened to of being listened to of being held of being in a relationship where they don't have to care and attend to the other. So what I'm talking about is therapy, you know, therapy and or spiritual direction mm-hmm. and of having an experience of, Oh, this is, this is what it is like for, for, um, you know, my story to be listened to, to be validated, to be, to be heard in, in, in the context of a safe relationship, because it's going to be really very difficult to offer something to someone that you haven't experienced yourself. Mm. So in fact, it's going to be impossible. Right. Um, so, you know, I, um, so, so that would be, you know, my, my first thing is like, okay, if we can have, and this is like a dream of mine, is if, if we can have all, you know, pastors, leaders, um, priests, if we can have them be in weekly therapy for one year, I think that that would totally transform the church. Mm-hmm. I, just, I think it would totally shift the, the church. Obviously, it would need to be with a, a, a good therapist or a good enough therapist. Uh, but that I think that would just totally change the system. Um, and then um, a resource that I just think is such a helpful resource is The Listening Life by Adam McHugh. In terms of, you know, how to listen, how to, you know, um, pr- provide a safe relational space in the context of, you know, either individual, like one-on-one relationships or even in groups, that's such a great practical tool. I, I can't recommend it enough. Mm. So helpful. Thank you for both of your answers. I think that gives us some really practical steps we can take, but also just the vision that you cast for what could happen if we took this seriously, starting in our Mm -hmm. own healing and growth and learning to listen. That's huge. So thank you. Um, Megan, I was thinking back to your background that you shared. And at the beginning of our conversation, you talked about your time working with uh, people under 18. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think in terms of this ministry context, what it could look like for adults might look different, Mm -hmm. or maybe not, Mm -hmm. from how we approach this conversation with our students and our kids in ministry, maybe even how we support their families. So Mm -hmm. just wondering if you Mm -hmm. have any thoughts specific to that area of how do we create safe spaces for kids and students um, who maybe have experienced trauma? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I love that there's special attention being paid to to children and youths because they are experiencing a lot of trauma, particularly period. Um, There are unique situations in which um, a child or a a youth would experience trauma. And yet there's a collective experience the past couple years um, that they are less socialized. uh, They were out of the classroom. There's just a lot. And so I, I would go back. My first thought is to go back to those people who are with them, right? So this would be the parents, this would be the youth workers, these would be um, the people that, you know, uh, the coaches that care about and are attending to to youths and children. And um, I would say it's going to look, creating a safe space is going to look like, again, um, 
holding that environment that they are able to be themselves and they're uh, allowed and able to have big feelings without feeling that the person who's holding that space is going to shut them down. And what I mean by that, again, is this idea of being able to be validating and compassionate um, to hold them in a way that they would be able to show up with that feeling um, and kind of work the way and feel their way through it, right? And so I, I'm really thinking first um, about the experience of the two and the three-year-old or the mother or father of the two and the three-year-old, the one who's the, the child is tantruming, right? And the tantrum can look to most parents as a, um, a willful defiance, a... Um, you know, just an explosion uh, and an uncontained, uh, you know, that this child is not able to contain themselves. I would love for a parent uh, or a caregiver to be able to reconceptualize that and consider instead that this child has a lot going on inside of them. So this is your two and your three-year-old, but guess what? This is also your 12 and your 13-year-old and your 19-year-old, right? They have a lot yes. going on inside of them. And so then they are, they are trying to express that. And when they're teeny tiny, they're not able to do that in an emotionally intelligent way. And so if the parent, if the youth with the worker, if the caregiver, if the coach, if the teacher is able to say bring it on. I'm going to try to manage myself so that mm -hmm. I can handle all of your feelings right now. And what the child and what the youth is saying to them is you are the safest person to me right now because I trust that you can take this. Most of your two and three-year-olds are not tantruming with their preschool teacher. They're doing it at home because they know the preschool teacher cares about them, but they know that mom and dad are with them through thick and thin again, this relational holding. And so they're going to tantrum with the safest person. Okay. And so when I work with youth now in a clinical setting or I work with their parents, I have to tell them, you are going to see what you're going to call the worst behavior, but also consider that they are purging all of their feelings all over the home right now, because that is the safest environment for them. And so then if we can reconceptualize that they are seeing you in a safe way, we can take a deep breath and say, oh, this is a ton to manage right now. This is very triggering for me as an adult in this scenario. And I either want to be able to fix, help, solve, clamp it down. But instead, if I can let them feel their way through this feeling, this is actually going to be more beneficial for them and actually more beneficial for the system, whether the system is the team, the small group, the home. Um, so that I, I don't know, Barry, kind of what you would add to that. but. Um, those are, that's, again, there's much to talk about here, but in terms of creating a safe environment, again, letting it in some way, managing yourself well enough to say, okay, bring it on. And again, this idea that you can validate without agreeing, right? You're not going to agree with bad behavior necessarily, right? But you can validate, oh, you've got a lot of feelings about this. Okay. Yeah. Let's hear them. And oftentimes kids, like kids, kids' emotions can feel like a personal attack, you know, and it can feel like their emotions, whether they're two year old, two two years old, and I have a two year old, or you know, uh, a seventeen years old, where they have, you know, a lot more language. They're very articulate. It can feel um, like a personal attack, and you know, it's actually not. It's it's the, it's what's going on inside of them. And I, what Megan was saying is like being able to respond to them that that actually is such a gift and creates mm -hmm. so much safety and 
recognizing, oof, there's something coming up inside of me and I'm, I'm going to attend to it maybe just a little bit later in, in a, an event session to my spouse, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, but there's also an opportunity for the church to be responsive here as well, where when, you know, at church, whether it be like in the main service or in, in, a, in a room or at a, an event, if a child is having a hard time or a hard moment to offer compassion, collective compassion, rather than, you know, judgment or advice or things that are, you know, veiled advice giving um, or, you uh, you know, something along those lines. I I think that um, there's a response. The, the response from the church could also create a very like wonderful, safe holding environment um, for the kids as well, and that you give them another option or another space to express their emotions a little bit more freely. Mm-hmm. And um, that would just be such a gift to to the family, to absolutely the kids, to the parents. What I think is so important for us to catch and what both of you are sharing here is that for many of us who grew up in the church, depending on your tradition, this is really counter to the messages that we've probably been told. As kids, church is the place where you have it all together. You are on your best behavior. You don't. You wear your best clothes and no one has any tantrums. And so um, I, I think that what you are mentioning is really important for those of us in ministry to think about the message that we are conveying of are we a safe space for um, for people in their toughest moments, mm-hmm. um, whether they are children or adults, to be able to to be vulnerable, to break down, to you know express emotions, and particularly when it comes to kids and students, uh, what messages are we teaching them about the character of God? Because. I, from my personal experience, it's nice to know that God is safe, that I can sort of <laughs> throw a tantrum. We see this in scripture, you know, the Psalms and places where the writers of scripture express some pretty clear feelings about <laughs> what they felt about what they saw God doing or not doing. And so um, I think we're really getting at the heart of the character of God and what we're communicating in these spaces. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I would would also consider too, and something that we need to really pay some attention to is the fact that we are embodied beings. We live in bodies. Mm. And so Mm -hmm. we will, especially children, especially children will experience their emotions through their bodies. So we also Mm. to, to the point we're just mentioning, um, we are told to be on our best behavior and we're told to sit still and we're told to not throw that toy. Let's not throw that toy, but let's find a way to do something with our body that is within appropriateness so that we can work that out. So even in my youth ministry days, I mean, so much of what we did was on the go, right? We're doing a lot of things. We're playing, you know, games in the park or we're, we're Southern California. So we're taking them on surf trips. We're going snowboarding. We're doing things with our bodies. Um, And so I want to bring that into the church as well, that we need to be thoughtful about our embodiment and then what we do with our emotions, with our bodies Mm. and through our bodies as well. Great catch. Thank you for adding that. Well, and just to, to jump on that just a little bit, I I, am, um, I attend an Anglican church, um, and so it's a very it's a lot of up down up down you know so, you know kneeling standing you know all of the things, but you know it that actually helps to kind of metabolize the the liturgy and like what's what's going on, but if we could have you know churches church spaces 
especially for for kids for adolescents be a space where they can move and they can they can really kind of internalize their relationships in 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 some sort of like a way that that moves their bodies uh that that will not just tell their minds but tell their bodies tell their nervous systems oh this is a safe space Mm. that is such a oh my gosh it's such a um it's such a good word. I I have enjoyed just being sort of a uh, little mouse in the corner here, listening to everything and, and taking notes and being inspired, quite honestly, being inspired to dream bigger and better about small groups, about the church as a whole, and, a, and really about being a better neighbor mm. and hopefully a better family member. Mm. Mm. So thank you so much, Barry and Megan. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, no, it's been so wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for joining us for the Alabaster Jar podcast. If you found today's episode with Dr. Barry Bishop and Megan Phillips helpful, we've included information from their conversation in today's episode description. Please subscribe, share with a friend, and join us back here next week for a brand new episode.